questions, actually. Right. Um, yes, I know there were some questions last time. So, yeah, so let's, um, if anybody has questions, as you just said, uh, Avi, um, yeah, they can ask, uh, I guess, um, in the middle of the uh, shiur. Um, in addition, um, let me, and I, and I will reserve some time at the end. We're going we're gonna to finish it a little early today. We don't have too much left till the uh, till the next uh, till the end of the suya, so that we should be finishing early. So we definitely will have time for questions. Um, let me uh, let me ask you, Avi. Do you have the ability to share the map of the first suya on your side? Because um, from a technical perspective, I am using only one screen today as opposed to three, so it would be easier. But if you can't, I'll do it on my side. I should be able to. I'll try get it up now. All right. Um, and while you're doing that, let me just, um, you know, review where we're at. So we're about to finish the, where this is a, a so it's called the sugya Meshuleshet, which means it's a three-part sugya. We saw that each one of the three parts in turn had three parts. Um, it doesn't always have to be like that. Uh, for example, sometimes you can have a sugya kefula Meshuleshet or Meshuleshet kefula. So there's different, um, there's different, uh, structural formats for the sugyot. Um, and um, in part, uh, and let me know when it's up, because I'm, I'm not looking, Avi, when you have the um, map up, uh, let me know uh, so that I'm aware that we can be, we proceed. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue talking. Um, so part one of the, and, and, and the purpose of this really was to understand the very beginning of the Mishnah. What I'm going to do with you at the end of this class is I am going to read to you the Perusha Mishnah of the Harambam, and you'll see how well the words of Harambam mirror not just the sugya, as I've explained it, um, but also mirror the um, the particular girsa that I chose last week. And I want to say a word about that girsa now, because I know there was a question um, about the girsa, um, and people said, well, you know, we can explain the other girsa this way or that way, and that's fine. I think I, I mentioned in the class that I was a little confused by the other girsa, but I didn't um, discount or eliminate the possibility that there's different explanations um, so when we read the Rambam in the Perusha Mishnayot, you'll actually see how his words are very, are very carefully crafted uh, to match the Gersa that I brought to your attention. Okay, that's important. Um, but let's just summarize where we're at. We had the uh, textual problem in the Mishnah. We had the approach offered by Rabbi Abhu. Um, and uh, the approach offered by Rabbi Abhu was fine but it wasn't um, perfect. It wasn't without problems. It, the, the, the approach offered by Rabbi Abu as, as, as studied in the yeshiva of Fombedita, Baraba, had certain textual issues to it. And um, worse yet, not only did it have textual issues, but it ignored the interpretation given by the great Shemuel. So Shemuel, who was a... Talmud of uh, Ben Wakadosh was present, or a young Talmud, a very young Talmud, I should say. Uh, but he was certainly present uh, during the editing of the Mishnayot. He had um, a comment um, uh, on this Mishnah, and, or, or, or he didn't have a direct comment, but apparently he addressed the textual difficulty in the Mishnah. And uh, Rabbi Yavu was simply unaware of that. Um, why was he unaware of that? Um, well, at the end of this class, I will uh, perhaps address that as well. I hope I make a note to, to address that. So Rava offers a different approach to the Mishnah. The different approach that Rava offers is not an approach that has legal consequences, but it has interpretive consequences. So that's where we're, that's where we're at. And basically, the interpretation of Rava is the interpretation that's ultimately accepted, and because it's the interpretation that's ultimately um, accepted, you'll see again how Rambam mirrors that interpretation. Um, let's now look. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Looking to share it now? Yes, sir. Please, that would be that would be great. All right, and. I am now going to be looking at something else, but you can go to part three, Avi. Go to part uh, three of the um, map. And uh, part three is the statement of Rabaha Bere Derab Ika. Let me explain to you um, what's happening here. 
Um, Rav Habere de Ravika is also in Yeshivat from Bedita. He's one generation later. So meaning um, the discussion of this Mishnah ended during the generation of Rava. We saw that discussion and that seemed to finalize the matter. But then the next generation um, um, when Rabah was Rosh Yeshiva, we said the Yeshiva was in Fombedita. The next generation was Rav Papa. Rav Papa was the Rosh Yeshiva. A colleague of Rav Papa is Rav Aha Bere de Ravika. And Rav Aha Bere de Ravika was not the Rosh Yeshiva, but he makes the following statement. I'm going I'm to read the statement and then I'm going to explain it and then I will comment upon it. So just so you know where we're at. So this is a further discussion, this is a further element. He makes the following statement, and it is as follows. From the perspective of biblical law, it is sufficient to have a single uh, Dayan adjudicating um, these matters. And, um, and, and where do I learn this from? Or where, where, where can this be le- gleaned from? So it says, and that's using the singular um, form. And from here, Rabaha, rather, I don't want to say from here, but rather Rabaha is um, illustrating his point, again, using the text in the Torah as a rhetorical tool to express the halakha, which is, Kasher. Okay, I want to I want to point out certain difficulties with this statement. This is a very dramatic statement. Um, until now, we've had several generations of Emoraim, starting with Rabbi Abu in Caesarea, Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan, second generation of Emoraim going to Rava in uh, from Bedita or Mechaza, fourth generation of Emoraim, and and there is a consensus, and the consensus is as follows: You need to have three Dayanim in Dine Mamonot. Um, the, the issue was whether they have to be mumhin or they don't have to be mumhin, but three dayanim as a minimum was the um, was it was a consensus. And comes Rav Habere de Ravika and he makes this dramatic statement, Mide oraita had name kasher. Um, so first of all, he's not the Rosh Shiva. Now, obviously, the Rosh Shiva allowed this discussion to take place because this is a formal statement that's made in the Yeshiva. Um, so um, I, and, and as I said, I, 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 I would venture to guess, or the way the, the yeshiva worked is the Rosh Yeshiva allowed discussions to take place on subjects that the Rosh Yeshiva himself approved of, uh, which is to say that the statement wouldn't be made in the yeshiva, wouldn't be recorded in the Talmud as a formal statement if it wasn't for the fact that the Rosh Yeshiva accepted it. So, so while it's a dramatic statement, it's something that was accepted. So we need to understand that a little more um, clearly. I would also add one other thing. We know from other sugyot that Rav Ahab, has conversations with Rav Asheh, who was perhaps a little uh, junior to him. So if he's having conversations with Rav Asheh, and Rav Asheh was one of the editors of the Talmud, we can understand how this statement of Rav Ahab, gets prominence. It's included in the sugya. It's actually a very important statement. Um, but I just want to give you that historical context of the different players so that you see the interconnections between the different figures in the Talmud and understanding how, um, uh, uh, what's going on, or at least the historical context. Um, okay, let's examine the statement of Rav Haber Um By the way, I don't see anybody. I'm assuming that you're still there. Um, I'm just, again, I'm looking at a screen with, uh, with the Talmud. So if can somebody just shout out and say, yes, we hear you, that would be great. We hear you. I was getting a little concerned. There was a very long pause there. I was getting concerned, um, but, <laughs> but thank you. Okay, um, so let's um, let me um, let me explain the statement. So at the superficial at the superficial level, the statement of Ravaha is as follows. If you recall, Rabbi Abhu said that um, if there are less than three dayanim, en dinehem din. Um, perhaps you can go back in the map of the sugya to the section where Rabbi Abhu says that, because it's, it's important to understand what the issue that Rav Ahabere de Ravika is um, addressing. If you go back to part Roman numeral part one, 
um, capital B, number one, right? Um, was that right, actually? No. One second. Yeah. Where is it that Rabbi Abu says, en dinehen din? One moment, please. Okay. Yeah, I was correct, actually. Yeah. Um, so um, if you find that, it says, Ilema de la Bainan Shelosha Vehama Rabbi Abu, Shenaim Shedanu Dinema Monot, Litibreha Kol, En Dinehem Dina. Notice what Rabbi Abu is saying. Rabbi Abu is making a very categoric statement. Litibre Hakol. It is um, unanimously agreed, meaning among the Hachamim, there is unanimity, that if two Dayanim, they um, make, um, they adjudicate Dinema um, Monot, um, the adjudication, the judgment is invalid. That's a very, very clear-cut statement of Rabbi Avhu, unequivocal, and it's not challenged for many years. It's not challenged for several generations. Now going back to the statement of Rav Aha, Rav Aha Beredelakov says, actually, no, mideoraita had name kasher. As a matter of biblical law, if you have one dayan, it's kosher, meaning the, 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 the adjudication is, I don't like the word kosher. It's a valid adjudication. That's what he says, hadna mekasher. Now, uh, so, so, so let's just understand this. When Navahabed Edelavika is adding this detail, it's not clear that he's coming to uh, disagree with Rabbi Avu, because all Rabbi Avu says is, he's saying the adjudication is invalid. But when he says the adjudication is invalid, he's talking from a perspective of rabbinic law. As a matter of rabbinic law, we do not recognize a judgment that was conducted um, with less than three dayanim. Whereas Rav Habere de Ravika is making the statement, oraita hadna mekasher. So this is a, this is a statement that uh, needs to be um, a further examined, okay? Because what is his position? What is his position in the event um, it, that there is a, a single Dayan who adjudicates. Um, is he going to say that also Banan, the adjudication is um, valid? So that let's suspend that because that's a question and we have to understand it. But as you know, um, we're first going to examine the historical reason why the Hachamim if indeed, from the perspective of the Torah, you could have one Dayan, why did the Hakamim require three Dayanim? And that's part B of the Sugya. So part A is we have the statement of Rav Haberet Rabika, which we still have to examine further. Part B is the policy consideration behind why, if from the Torah, um, one Dayan is sufficient, why well, we have three Dayanim. Ela, Mishum, it's important to understand Hebrew well. As, so here, Keren, um, in the um, Torah, um, you have the word Keren, of course, to describe the horn of an animal as the Shofar, for example. Um, but also the word Keren is Karnot So Karnot refers to the corners, to the extremities of the Mizbeah. So when we're talking about Yosheve Kenanot, we mean people who reside at the extremities, meaning we have the Jewish community, and then we have Jews who live far away from the community. Um, Rabbeinu Hanan El, he uses the word Yosheve Midbarot. By Midbar, he doesn't mean uh, necessarily the Sahara Desert or uh, you know uh, other regions in North Africa, but rather he means places that are desolate. Desolate in, one, in what sense? So um, it's just part of the Hebrew, um, uh, the Hebrew language. Um, and, and the prose of the Chachamim. So by Midbar, we mean a place that's desolate from Torah. So a place can be, um, you know, it could be a um, you know, very lush place with, with grass and, and, and rivers, <laughs> but it's, it's considered in Midbar in the sense that it's a place outside the Jewish community and you don't have Tamid Chachamim there and uh, there is no Torah or Torah is dirt. It's, it's not as um, available um, as in other places. So that's what the word Yosheve Kenanot means. So now that we understand the word, um, let's understand the idea. The idea is that there are Jewish people living outside the community. These people engage in business and oftentimes have disputes. 
And if one of these people has a dispute with with uh, with his fellow Jew, and they they want to have an adjudication, uh, it, the, the adjudication should take place in the presence of three judges, because in the presence of three judges, um, you would have um, an abundance of Torah. Um, it's three people as opposed to one person. So if we follow the biblical law, um, you choose one person. That one person in a desolate place is no doubt an Anha'aris. But if you have three people, there's going to be an abundance of Torah. There will be more Torah. And as a result, and because of that consideration, the Hachamim said, let's always have these um, disputes adjudicated with three people. Yoshevet Kedarot. That's, that's, um, that's part B of the sugya. So now we have the statement of Ravaha, we have the policy consideration. We still don't know whether what Ravaha said was the was um, a, a matter of, of rabbinic law as well. We still don't know that. Um, and we still have some challenges to Ravaha. So we're gonna have three challenges to Ravaha challenge. And as you know, we said several times this is Sugya Mishuleshev. So it's not surprising that we would have three challenges to Ravaha. Exactly. So let's start with the first challenge. Challenge number one. Okay, and um, here we go. Ah, tu bitlata mi lahavu yoshevek So challenge number one is, uh, well, um, let's consider this uh, matter. Uh, come now. If you have three judges, do we not still have the um, issue of um, uh, there being a lack of Torah, a lack of Torah knowledge, an inability to adjudicate this uh, dispute properly? I mean, it's still a desolate place. Nothing changed. Why does having three people, why does having three ameha um, ares, uh, you know, I know that in math, one plus one plus one equals three, but if you have, let's say, three burim who know nothing about Torah, one plus one plus one still equals zero. So that's the basic premise of the Gemara. If we have three people who are not Laosmo in Torah, do we not still have Burut and therefore, um, unfortunately, a bad adjudication of this dispute or an improper adjudication of the dispute? And the Gemara says, That even in the most desolate Jewish communities, you will always find somebody who is gamil. Um, my father, in his Golden Doves, he discusses the difference between gamir and sabir. Uh, gamir was the lowest level of learning. It referred to a person who was aware of and fluent in the various rabbinic formulations. So these rabbinic formulations are called halakha. So a person who is fluent in the halachot, for example, he can open up the Mishneh Torah, he knows what the Mishneh Torah says, he's gamir, right? Um, there could be gamir, bechola Torah kula, there could be gamir, um, um, a person who has fluency in all of the Torah, but at the lowest level, that's called gamir. And the premise of Rav Aha, the premise of this statement is that the if you're going to have three people adjudicating a case, there is, um, uh, it is, it is likely that one of the people that's chosen will end up being a pe- person who has the minimal knowledge of the halachot, and therefore the adjudication would be a more proper adjudication. So that's the first challenge to Ravaha. So again, the policy consideration is yes, um, uh, three burim equals zero knowledge of Torah, that's correct, but we're hoping that if you if you're going to already choose a tribunal, one of the people that's chosen will be a tamir hacham who has some some knowledge at least of the halachot and therefore has the ability to bring the adjudication into um, into a valid conclusion. Let's look at challenge number two. Ela me'ata ta'u lo yeshalmu. So then the question is as follows, and we dealt with this last week. Um, namely, we dealt with the issue of a person who is not qualified to be a judge. Um, if that person indeed acts as a judge and adjudicates a case, he has personal liability for his errors, right? Um, and the question here is, perhaps we should say that uh, since we are aware that we are going to be bringing judges to this adjudication who are not qualified, 
Uh, perhaps, therefore, we should lower their liability as judges. Perhaps, therefore, we should say, well, in this case, since it's Yoshadeh Keranot, there should be no personal liability for errors in adjudication. And the Gemara says, au contraire. Kol sheken dinafishe Yoshadeh Keranot. Um, uh, no, um, the, um, uh, this, is, this is not the case because we um, want to make sure that if anything, um, they have three judges and the three judges are willing to come forward and are willing to indeed act as judges. And again, the hope being that one of the judges himself will be Gamir. So we do want them to have uh, liability we do want them to be personally liable so that the three judges that come up are actually qualified. Again, um, let me, perhaps I, I, I'm thinking that I didn't phrase that well, so let me rephrase that. Um, if, if we were to say, oh, there's no personal liability, then we're increasing the likelihood that the nefisha Yosheveh Kenanot, you're increasing the likelihood that there will be more Yosheveh Kenanot, meaning Burim, adjudicating um, this dispute. So we don't want that. We would prefer to encourage the Tamidah Hachamim, perhaps from another city, perhaps from somewhere else, to come and adjudicate the dispute. Um, and, 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 and of course, Abur is less likely to adjudicate the dispute if he knows that there's personal liability for errors. So that's why, yes, the law of personal liability, that rule that imposes personal liability upon a non-qualified judge, um, stays in place because we want to encourage, encourage qualified judges to step up and adjudicate the action. And finally, challenge number three. Um, and this, um, this last question, it, it, really, um, it really explains what the Rav Ha's statement is about because we really don't fully understand it yet. I don't like the word challenge. I'm going to revise that word, challenge. It's not challenge number three. I would say this is question number three or issue number three, because uh, it's not a challenge. We're not challenging uh, in this particular, in number three here, we're not challenging Rav Ha's. I'm actually going to change it here on my page. I can't change it on yours, but I'm just letting you know that that change is taking place. Issue number three. So this is an interesting question. And perhaps I'm going to invite one of you to um, um, help me here. What is the difference in position between Rava and Rava Habere de Rabika? This is a difficult question. Who said there's a difference in position? Um, why, why are we assuming that there is a difference in position between the two? Right? That's an important question. Um, does anybody clear? Uh, does anybody wish to um, chime in uh, as to what the Gemara is? Because my ika, well, why? Why are you making that assumption? Why? Why should there be a position? Didn't we say that Rav Ha is talking from the perspective of biblical law? Uh, perhaps he fully agrees with, for example, Rabbi Abu, who said that Shinaim Shedanu and Dini Hamdin. You understand? So it seems almost like we're trying to contrive a dispute here. Any thoughts? Anybody want to uh, make a suggestion? I'm, I'm not going to call in people's names, although the names appear here, but that would be mean. I would not do that. Um, Could it be that perhaps we have a, a situation where if a judgment was made in Bidiyavad, by, sorry, by one judge, Bidiyavad, you know, because it was okay, according to Torah law, we would abide by it, but Lechat Chila, we wouldn't, we encourage that, or I mean, you know, there might be some differences in 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 some boundary conditions. That... Okay, so first of all, this I, I assume your name is Robert. Did I get that right? Yes, thank you. Right. Well, first of all, thank you for um, thank you for um, stepping up and for participating. Um, m- there must be some reason. There must be some reason, some a priori reason, why the Gemara assumes a contradiction. They say, my ika ben, what is the difference between? Those words have a reason for them, right? And, and they're, not, they're not so much, you know, um, inside the flow of the discussion. There's nothing in the flow of the discussion that would necessitate that assumption. So there is, but there's something, there is something in the wording. 
Could it be? And I'll tell you what it is. I'm sorry? Uh, who's that? Avi. <laughs> ah, very nice. Exactly. Exactly. But it says, now, when, when Ravena, um, when um, Ravena, Ravashev Ravena, when they uh, edited the text, now also when the statement of Ravachab de Ravika is um, formulated and it enters the records of the yeshiva, in this case, yeshiva from Bedita, it's, it's formulated as Ravachab de Ravika Ama. Now, uh, when, when it says Rabbah Habered Ravika Amar, it means I disagree with the aforementioned, right? Um, and, and it was formulated as a challenge to Ravah. So we know that he's disagreeing with Ravah. There is a disagreement with Ravah. Otherwise, they would have formulated it as Amar Rabbah Habered Ravika. And they could have done that. But if, if, it, if the text would have just said Amar Rabbah we would be reading this Gemara and saying, great, okay, so thank you for the clarification. Now we understand that as a matter of biblical law, indeed, um, one Dayan is kasher. As a matter of rabbinic law, you need three Dayanim. And the reason you need three Dayanim is um, uh, for the policy considerations discussed previously. But it doesn't say that. It says, So we know that there's a disagreement between Ravah and Ravah. That's really important. Um, so uh, let me continue. So I'm going to read that again. You see how every word in the Gemara has meaning, and it's not just, you know, um, I, I, well, I don't mean to say this in a disrespectful way, um, but what, what I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, it, it's important to assume that the Hachamim weren't rambling, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and the Hachamim were very precise in the way they spoke and the way they formulated um, their statements, and they took language incredibly seriously because we're not used to that. We're not used to that um, level of linguistic sophistication. It often seems like, you know, surprising to many people that every single word in the, in the text um, is, is rich with meaning. But that's, that was part of Jewish thinking. Jewish thinking, and my father writes about this in the horizontal society, the whole premise of the horizontal society is alphabetic thinking, alphabetic thinking. We always thought in terms of words and speech and letters and every letter and every word was meaningful. So it's a different type of thinking for us. Um, and and when it, so when I say we shouldn't assume that the hachamim were rambling, what I'm actually trying to say is that we often do that ourselves, but that's just part of the Western world where, where there is um, less of an emphasis on rhetoric and language and more of an emphasis on, well, what is he really saying? What's the idea here, right? And once you know the idea, the language is less important. So I'm reading that again. Ma'ika ben Ika ben Dishmuel The disagreement between Rav Aha and Ravika, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, between Rava, excuse me, um, and Ravaha is the same um, uh, difference or the same dispute that you would find between Shemuel and Rabbi Abhu. Ika benayhu, Shemuel Rabbi Abhu, De'amar Shemuel. Oh, you don't have that, right. So if you look at the, um, if you look at the standard text, the words Dishmuel Rabbi Abhu, which here you see are capitalized, uh, are not in the standard text. Um, it doesn't change the meaning greatly, but it does uh, serve to clarify. Ika benayhu, Dishmuel Rabbi Abhu. Right, it's it's it's. I, th- I think it's um it's more elegant in the way it's phrased. The Amar Shemuel Shenaim Shedanu Dinehem Din Ella Shenikreu Vet Din Hasuv. As Shemuel says, if two judges the judges uh, adjudicate a dispute, um, the judgment is valid. It has legal standing, meaning the litigants must comply with the instructions of the judges. But uh, this is a betin hasuf. This is an arrogant um, 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 judges, right? They, 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 they have a lot. They, they're audacious uh, for just sitting down, the two of them together, and not bringing a third person to join them in this adjudication. But, okay, that's a moral, meaning there's a moral problem with the dayanim. Um, we can, you know, other hakamim perhaps can rebuke them. But as far as the adjudication, it has a legal standing of law. It was properly done. And, um, and, and it's fine. So again, the Amar Shemuel, Shenaim Shedanu, Dinehem Din, Ella, Shenikleuvet, In Hasu, Lerabah. If we consider the position of Rabah, Let, Le, Dishmuel, Rabah does not 
does not um, abide by the um, the statement of Shemuel that Avaha bered Ravika eat led the Shemuel according to Avaha bered Ravika he does abide by the statement of Shemuel. So what does that mean? So now we got a little more clarity. What that means is that when Ravaha bered Ravika made his statement that midi oraika hadna mekasher right. He, um, it, it means that if you have an adjudication which has less than three people, well, okay, so this, this, okay, well, uh, let me ask another question. Okay, let me ask another question. Does, um, does Rava, does Rabbi Abhu agree with that? So that, that's an interesting question. Well, if you look at Rabbi Avu's original statement, it's not clear because Rabbi Avu in his original statement is Shinaim Shedanu and Din. The Din is not a Din, meaning it's, it's, it's invalid. But why is it invalid? You understand my question? Is it invalid as a, as a matter of biblical law? Is it invalid as a matter of, well, of course, it's invalid as a matter of rabbinic law. But do we say that somehow this has legal standing, the oraita? It's, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's an important question. Um, and, it, and it's going to tell you something as to how the um, legal system works. Um, let me give you the following. Um, let me give you, there's, there's, there's two keys here to understanding this discussion. Um, and, and let me provide you the two keys. Okay, the first key is as follows. And I think this is related to a question that somebody asked previously in one of the previous uh, classes, or maybe he posted it on the side and I never addressed it. Um, do the hachamim have the authority to abrogate uh, the olayta laws? Uh, that's a good question. Um, can the hachamim abrogate a din de olayta? So I would like to say the following. There are actually three cases. Um, this is the... This is the Me'iri in the first chapter of Masachet Megillah. I think he says it. Excuse me. It was the Me'iri in the first chapter of Masachet Yivamot. I think he says it best. Um, and, and it's the following three cases. Number one, the Hachamim have a right to abrogate a misvat aseh de'oraita, b'shev ve'alta aseh, in order to prevent um, a potential violation of a misfat lo de oraita. So the classic example would be shofar and rosh hashanah. Should we blow the shofar and rosh hashanah shachaliot b'shabbat? It's a misfat aseh de oraita. And the answer is well, yeah, of course, because the misfat uh, of blowing the shofar is misfat aseh de oraita, and the isur of blowing a shofar on Shabbat is a shevut, and it's even less than a shevut. The Gemara says in the first chapter of Sechet Shabbat. Um, that chokmahi ve'ena melacha, it's not even a melacha, it's not even karov le'melacha, it's just kind of a, it's, it's, it's a type of thing that takes some skill. So chokmahi ve'ena melacha, according to the standard rules of jurisprudence, we should boil the shofar on um, Rosh Hashanah. The same way that according to the standard rules of jurisprudence, why not make netilat ulav on, on Sukkot, shachaliot Shabbat, right? Uh, what's, what's there? There's nothing there. Um, so the hachamim have the right to abrogate in order to prevent the potential violation of Misfat um, Lota In this case, Misfat Lota Aseh, right? So you're probably familiar with that law. I'm not going to elaborate on that particular law. So that's case number one. Case number one is um, to um, annul, or not to annul, um, to suspend the Misfat Aseh in order to protect the Misfat Lota Aseh. Um, uh, there is, and by the way, this is important as long as we're talking about uh, Shofar, the same thing with Megillah. The reason you don't read the Megillah on Shabbat is for the same reason. I really have to add this. I mean, I, I, I'm going to take this opportunity to be mean, um, and I'm sorry if this ruins somebody's, uh, I'm sorry if this ruins somebody's Purim. I don't mean to do that. Um, I want everybody to be happy and to enjoy themselves. Um, but a, a good example for would be: um, Can you wear? Um, can a man dress up? Uh, can a man dress up and put him in women's clothing, as is commonly? I, mean, I used to see this a lot, unfortunately, in uh, in Israel. And uh, people were very surprised when I announced in the synagogue that actually uh, this is sur de oraita. They said no, but it's for the mitzvah of uh, of you know dressing up and put him. 
Um, that's a non-existent mitzvah, of course. There's no mitzvah to dress up on Purim. And, you know, everybody does what they want to do, and I'm okay with that. But it's not a mitzvah. Uh, but even if it was a mitzvah, we, we, can't, um, we cannot be ovrim, we cannot be, um, um, what do you call it, um, uh, violent mitzvah, mitzvah lo ta'aseh de'olaita, lo yilbash gever simlat isha. Right, so that's important. So uh, there is no, there are no circumstances where we can just decide that we don't want to abide by misvot lotase de oraita. I want to get to the um, to the third category that the Meiri brings out. So it's relevant to our um, uh, discussion. The third category is that the hachamim have a right to be mafkirim the mamon of a person mishum hefker bedin hefker. So the bet din have authority over property and the definition of property law, and therefore, by extension, who owns what, right? That's summarized in the words, hefker bet din hefker. Okay, now I want you, that, so that's key number one. So key number one is, even if the oraita, even if the oraita, um, there was, um, a property belongs to a certain person. And even if the oraita, the rules require that that person be the owner of that property, the betin has a right to be mafkir the property and say, no, he doesn't own it. So over rules, over matters of property law, the betin has a tremendous latitude in their authority. Okay? That's important. So now... Let's get back to the question of um, So we said that Rava does not agree with the statement of Shemuel. Shemuel says if two people made an adjudication, the adjudication is fine. Rava says, no, it's not an adjudication. What do you mean it's not an adjudication? Let's say these two Dayanim reached a conclusion, and in the conclusion they said, then take $100 from your pocket and give it to Shimon. Now comes Rava and says, no. I disagree. Uh, what do you mean you disagree? If as a matter of the Oraita law, it was a betin, and as a betin the Oraita, they can tell Reuven, take $100 from your pocket and give it to Shimon. How can Rabbah come and say no? And the answer is, Rabbah is saying, as a matter of rabbinic law, this is not a betin. And because as a matter of rabbinic law, this is not a betin, we can say no. Actually, Reuven keeps the $100, right? And don't tell me, but since the Oraita, Reuven has to pay the $100 to Shimon, he should pay the $100 to Shimon. No, because it's a really, it's a really important point. I hope that I expressed it clearly enough. For, I, I, I don't know if, 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 if I was clear. So if, if you want me to repeat this, I can do it because there's also another key I want to get to. And I see that we're getting closer to the a four fifteen hour, um, um, a fifteen minute uh, point. So is is that is that point clear? So I, let's just just summarize it. So you have Rabbi Habere de Ravika. Rabbi Habere de Ravika says the um, Oraita, you can have one person, and the Rabbanan, you can have one person. Okay, Rava doesn't disagree. This is so important. He doesn't disagree on the point of the Oraita. He agrees. He's saying the Rabbanan, it's not good. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to um, demonstrate that soon. He's saying that a banana, it's not good. And the reason we can say that a banana, it's not good is because of So therefore we have the authority to do that. But there's another key to understanding this. In Arambam in the Haktamatu Perusha Mishnayot, he said that there were never machlokot among the Chachanim involving matters that we got from Moshe Rabbeinu. So matters that we got from Moshe Rabbeinu, there was never machlokot among the hachamim. Now, um, we learned from Rav HaBere de Ravika that there are cases where you can have um, one dayan. Besedek, tishpot, amitecha. Right, he brings up a zupetzer, and he says, midi'oraita. Now, how can he say midi'oraita? How, how can he say that? Um, well, we're going to see soon that Shemuel, and actually we read that, um, did we read the statement of Shemuel? Um, yeah, we did. So we're going to see that Shemuel says that it's fine that the oraita, the, the, the adjudication is valid. So what is the dispute about? 
the dispute cannot be on the, on the Oraita matter because if the dispute was on the Oraita matter, you would have a dispute involving a matter of biblical law, which where did we receive the, the Oraita laws? We received them from Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So that cannot possibly be that on the law the Oraita of one Dayan, the Hakamim are having a dispute, right? So therefore, the only way to understand this is as I explained it. How did I explain it? I said, nobody disagrees on the point of the disagreement is, and what if somebody adjudicates the oraita, right? What's the status of that, right? We're going to see that it's more than that because later on the Gemara is going to deal and say, actually, you can also have one dayan. We're going to, we, you know, but the, the, the yesod hayesodot, is one Dayan is kasher de oraita. Everybody agrees that the oraita, one Dayan is kasher. The disagreement is, and, 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 and everybody agrees that under um, um, situations, you need three Dayanim and three Mumchim, for example, in case of Gezelot v'Chavalot. But then there are situations, Hoda'ot v'Halva'ot. And in Hoda'ot v'Halva'ot, did the Chachamim require three Dayanim? It's that specific issue. And what happens? And every and and and, and what happens if instead of using three dayanim, you use one dayan? So that's the crux of the dispute between Rabaha and Rava, right? And let's just now read the last clause in the um, Gemara. Ma'ika ben Rava le Rabaha bere de Ravika, ika ben Ayu de Shmuel udrubiabhu de Amar Shemuel. If two people uh, adjudicated a dispute, um, as we said, this is an audacious uh, thing. So Rava, um, who follows the interpretation of Rabbi Avhu, agrees with Shem, uh, with um, agrees with Rabbi Avhu. Namely, that the uh, adjudication is improper, it's an invalid adjudication, notwithstanding that the Oraita, it's proper. The Hachamim say this is an invalid um, adjudication, and the Hachamim have a right to do so. Um, but here's the question How can Rabbi Abhu not be aware a second time of the statements of Shemuel? The first time was where Shemuel offered the interpretation of the Mishnah, and based upon the interpretation of Shemuel, the way that Shemuel interpreted the Mishnah Rabbah, we had part two of our sugya. And here's second, second place, where the Biyavu is not aware of what Shemuel said. Rabbiavu said, and Hemdin, right? That's strange. And, 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 and I could only speculate, and that's why it's important to understand the sugya also from a historical perspective. My speculation is as follows. Rabbi Avu was in Caesarea in the days of the Roman occupation of Caesarea. The Roman government was there, and they were at war um, with the Persians. And Shemuel was, of course, in Nehardea'ah in Persia. And because Shemuel was in Nehardea'ah in Persia, um, apparently um, there was a, a lack of communication and a lack of um, exchange of um, halachot at this time in history. Later on, there was more exchange. We know during the Yohanan's time, there was more. We know that there were people who traveled, but there was this vacuum. Um, and we see it. We see two cases where there was a vacuum. Rabbi Abu was unaware of what Shemuel said, and um, and that's the premise of this. Yeah, now, I want to read to you um, the Perusha Mishnayot. Uh, if you give me a moment, it's unfortunately, just give me a moment. It's not here. It's, it'll take me uh, uh, approximately a minute. So I apologize for this uh, delay. Okay, I am back. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the screen with you. So Avi, I will, I will send you now 
I will send you now a, let me just do this this way. It's not the highest quality, but I think it will be sufficient for our purposes. Okay. So Avi, um, if you would be so kind as to look at your WhatsApp and the photo that I just shared with you, do you have the ability to share that with the rest? Or I can share it actually from my end if it's easier. You're muted, so I can't hear you. Um, I can, I can, I should be able to, if you give me. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do it before you. Let's see who, who, who um, does it first. I'm going to download it. Open. Okay. I think I can do this now at my end. So I'm going to save you the. Uh... Okay. All right, here we go. Okay. I want to read to you now, Lishon Hanabam. Okay. And you see, by the way, now you understand what the sugya is. You see how every part of the sugya has a very specific function, a very specific role. Everything is clear. I mean, at this point, it's just a question of getting the information organized in your mind. That's why we have the structure. But I think the sugya is so clear, it's almost, uh, it's almost delicious. Uh, uh, that's why I like setting, I love setting Gemara so much, because it really is uh, a pleasure. Okay, so you all see the uh, Lishon Hanambam, right? Good. Dine Mamonot. Look what Hanambam says. Nikelalam hagezelot v'achabalot. Of course, included in the word dinema monot is gezelot v'chavalot. But the very next word in the Mishnah is gezelot v'chavalot v'shlosha. So why say it? You see, you see how Arambam is mirroring the um, exact discussion, exact question that our Gemara brought, you see? Right? Atu gezelot v'chavalot, la dinema monot. You know, word for word. Literally, you see, it's a reformulation of the Gemara. Ela... Here, Harambam offers precisely the explanation of Rabbah that Gezelot v'chavalot are different than the rest of Dinei Mamonot. Gezelot v'chavalot require Mumchim, but the rest of um, Dinei Mamonot do not require Mumchim. You remember the um, statement of Rabbah? right? And then uh, remember that this, in the sugya that we study, this follows exactly the girsa that I brought to your attention, perfectly, perfectly. So you see that that Ambam follows the older girsa, which no, I mean I don't think that should be particularly surprising to anybody. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so in the case of Dinei uh, Mamonot, other than Gezelot V'chavalot, meaning Hodaot V'halvaot, you don't require Mumchim. And now he goes, V'ehad, Im haya Mumchim Also, you can have a single Dayan if the Dayan is a Mumchim L'Rabim. What is Mumchim L'Rabim? And this is going to be a subject that's dealt with in further Sugyot. But here you see that the idea of Shalim Shedanu um, and Dinehem Din as expressed by Rabbi Abhu is rejected in favor of Shemuel and in favor of Rabbi Chabere de Ravika. And here you see the contribution of Rabbi Chabere de Ravika to our discussion. Doesn't mean that there's a democratic election and everybody comes to elect a vote for judges. Larabi means he's known in the public as a wise man because the hachamim have validated his knowledge, right? That's, real, that's really important, right? Um, right. But in the case of Gezerot Bahabalot, you do need three expert judges. And that's why you have Dinema Monot Bishlosha. That's part one. Gezerot Bahabalot Bishlosha. There's a split between the two. Right. Exactly, literally, like I explained it. If you listen to the previous recording, um, in the question against Rava and how Rava answers it. Okay, that's it. That's what I want to bring to your attention. I see that it's 425. So actually, we have five minutes for questions, which is exactly where I was planning this. So um, if there are any questions, I'm happy to address them. And again, I just want to address the question. I think somebody asked me on the Discord, um, the, you know, that chat Discord. Um, somebody asked me, he offered an explanation of the um, Vilna, um, 
shas and yeah you can you can you could you it does have an explanation i don't again i don't mean to discount that go ahead if there's any questions i'm uh, happy to address them now maybe robert you want to ask last week's question oh, so my last week's question was answered well partially it was answered that, that the rav said that uh, there are certain well uh, we we have shava uh, we, we we can we can override um uh an 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 but not a lota assay he said um i haven't thought through how that reflects to our sugya but i was going to ask a slightly different question which was the concept of um hefka bet in hefka is that a derider concept or derivative concept and does it matter I mean, first, that's that's an excellent question. Um, I, I like especially the last part. It doesn't matter. Uh, who, who's who's asking this question right now? If I may ask, Robert, again. Robert. Okay, thank you, Robert. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's an excellent question. Doesn't matter, and um, and 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 I, I would have to say that the authority given to the betin by the Torah is to define property law and property rights. Right. So that's really. Um, and that's really important. Yeah, yeah. The Torah gives them that authority. So the authority of the betin is to gezerot, takanot, dinim muflaim, to transmit the the laws received by Moshe Rabbeinu, but also to define property law. What's yeah. the structure of that? Though? Why do they have that right to? So we have to. We we would have to study the. Um, we would have to study the appropriate sugyot. In the in the Gemara and see you know the development of that law. Um, I think what's important here in this case is just the idea again that Haramam says there can be no dispute on things we receive from Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore I would have to say that the law of one Dayan in the case of Odaot Vahalvaot or in in the case of some um, Dinei Mamonot it has to be something that was received from Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, otherwise, how can you say Midi Oraita? Um, and, 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 and it fits in so perfectly with the concept that the machloket is, well, what happens if, right? And that's why we need the law of uh, Hefkerti, um, or the principle of Hefkerti. Another question that was asked last week, I'm just, I have something in the back of my head. I remember, ah, yeah. Why does it say, that, that was a question. I'm, not, I'm just thinking out loud. And again, the, the, the formulation, you see it later on, I think it's in chapter three or four. Again, it says, So, Rabbeinu HaKadosh always uses formulations that are common. He always prefers to use the common formulations, because again, so I'm studying at Balpen. As you can see, I actually know Balpen. I, I w- this wasn't prepared as a trick for this um, <laughs> for this class, but rather, right? So I know Dinem Amonot Bishlosha, and then it repeats later on Dinem Amonot Bishlosha, right? So that was the way that Ben Hakadosh formulated the Mishnah. He preferred um, common usage terminology at the exp- at, even though it's less precise than to use the more precise terminology. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, so next week's sugya is a very short sugya. Um, it has to do with textuality, um, and it, it shows you how ideas were organized in the Mishnayot, right? And it's very counterintuitive, but we're going to be reading next week. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it, it is interesting. It takes us deeper into rabbinic thinking. And um, under the assumption that there are no more questions, if there are, you can raise your hands or chime in under the assumption, therefore, apparently conclusion that there are no more questions, I'm going to wish you all a uh, lovely evening, wherever you are in your respective uh, locations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining, and we look forward to next Monday. We'll continue. Are we carrying on the next sugya? Yes. Yes. The very next sugya. All right.